Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Hi, church. Hi. Um, I love some feedback, so feel free to keep that going, by the way. Um, God has an agenda today. Don't you feel it? There's a bit of a theme. So we are starting off our summer series on the Psalms, and I have the huge honor of kicking us off today. And so I'm just going to delve right in. When I asked the Lord what psalm to speak on, and this isn't my favorite psalm, by the way. I hadn't really looked at it, really. But I felt led to read Psalm 61, and here it is. Can you all see that? Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life, his years as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. O prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. So I will sing praise to your name forever that I may daily perform my vows. Now, before I speak about the psalm anymore, let me provide some context. Um, this, the Bible says this psalm is a psalm of David, and it's widely believed that when David wrote his, this psalm, he would have been in Mahanaim, um, where he fled during his son Absalom's uh, rebellion. Now, David was a man after God's own heart. He was king over Israel, a promise long contended for. But then during his reign, his son Absalom rebelled against him because he wanted the throne for himself and effectively banished David from Jerusalem, the seat of his throne. And then so in this place of betrayal, of exile and heartbreak, David starts the psalm with a plea, a heart's cry. He says, hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I Hear my cry, O God, when my heart is overwhelmed. David would have been in one of the darkest places when writing this psalm. And in his sorrow, he cries out to God for help. And I think many of us have known situations in our life where our hearts would echo that cry. I know I have. And when reading the psalm, what struck out to me was not just the depth of feeling, but that in almost every line that David wrote in his despair, there was a stark contrast between how the words were to be understood before the cross and after. So in other words, while I could understand to some extent the pain that David was feeling, I was also aware that my spiritual reality was markedly different from his. More specifically, I find that in these lines, we can find an example of three spiritual realities. A reality of effort, a reality of ease, and a reality of ease in our effort. Because you see, before the cross, many of the things he speaks of here would have been associated with a significant amount of effort. And after the cross, in our modern church context, we might look at these things with a notion of ease. But what I actually find is that through the cross, in all of these areas, we can experience ease in our effort. 
an ease that I believe God foreshadowed all along. Let me explain what I mean. In verse 2, David says this beautiful line, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Why the rock? You see, throughout the Bible, the Lord is referred to as a rock, the Hebrew word hereby being sur, and in relation to God, often used as rock and refuge. And in the following line, you see that very well, for you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower for my enemy. And so this notion of the rock as a safe place, a place of protection, definitely resonates. But I think there's more. You see, from a scripture perspective, David would have been most familiar with the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, in which the first occurrence of the word sir, rock, is actually in the story of Exodus, when the Israelites are in the desert and the Lord brings forth water from a rock to quench their thirst. And it would make sense that this story would be at the forefront of David's mind. The Israelites had followed the Lord's lead into the desert, only to find themselves in dire need. Likewise, David, with the exception of a few blips, would have been obedient to the Lord's command all his life, only now to find himself in exile. And so the story of the rock is the story of God providing refreshment in this wilderness. And David would have known that God did this twice. Once in the story of Exodus, and then a second time in Numbers. And David would have also known that in the first instance, God instructed Moses to strike the rock, and so he did. Woke you all up there. Um, bang, water gushed forth. Now, the Hebrew word here, and I love my Hebrew, the Hebrew word here for strike is nakha, and is very often found in the Old Testament to mean to kill, attack, and destroy. And so I think it's safe to say that there would have been a significant amount of effort involved. Picture it as Moses cracking that rock open. Effort. But in the second instance, God told Moses to simply speak to the rock, and water would come forth. It was an invitation into the ease of faith. Yet Moses decided to strike the rock twice, doubling down on his effort that he had previously made, and as a result, was never allowed into the promised land. And what I think this shows us so well is that while an effort may be required at some point in our lives, God's provision is not accessed by works, rituals, and actions, but by faith and trust. You see, Moses was rebuked for making a ritual out of his revelation, for trusting in his effort above the leading of God. And so David, in full knowledge of this, the story of Moses cries out to God, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. He's not saying I'm going to run to the rock. He's not saying I'm going to cling to the rock for dear life. In his weakness, he's asking God to be led for God's grace to take over and an ease guide him to a place of refuge and protection. And now for us who read this and knowledge of Jesus and the cross, we are reminded of Jesus' words that we've heard today in the worship songs where he speaks of building our house on the rock laying the foundation in the rock. And while at the first rock in the desert, there was effort, and at the second, there was an invitation to ease, it's clear that what Jesus is talking about here is not easy. It's hard digging into rock deep enough to lay a foundation. It's much harder than building on sand, much harder even than striking a rock in the desert. And Jesus doesn't leave us guessing as to what he means. His instructions are clear that laying our foundation in him means drawing near to him 
hearing his words, first and foremost in the Holy Scripture, but also in the leading of the Holy Spirit, and acting upon them. But it's not going to be easy. How can this be, you ask? Shouldn't we have access to more grace than Moses? Aren't we no longer under the yoke of the law? How does the rock Jesus speaks of require more work and effort than Moses' rock in the desert? Well, what I would like to suggest to you today is that while for Moses there was a challenge of effort and an invitation into ease, what Jesus offers to us through the cross is a third way, ease in our effort. Okay, so this might seem a little bit confusing right now. So I'm going to try and offer an illustration to help. I have a toddler, and as the mother of a toddler, there are many things that I do ad nauseum, and one of those things is singing nursery rhymes. Now, Liel, my daughter, loves nursery rhymes, and her, one of her favorites is Row, Row, and she has me singing it over and over and over again. You all know it. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. And so the, the song sounds so beautiful and so idyllic. You're just rowing a boat gently down the stream. It's romantic. It's like in the notebook. It's amazing. But who here has ever rowed a boat? It is hard work. Even on a perfectly still lake, even with no current or weather to contend with, it is hard. It is an effort. It's not romantic. If I were on a romantic notebook estate with Andrew and I were rowing, I would be sweating up a storm, <laughs> panting like a pooch on a hot day, and coming really close to swearing. That, to me, is a picture of effort. Now, on the other hand, who here has ever floated down a wide, gentle river on an inflatable? Okay, that, by the way, is my hometown in Zurich, and my brother does that every year. It's so easy. You're relaxing, watching the scenery, and you don't have to do a, a thing. The river does it all for you. You're just at the mercy of the flow. That, to me, is a picture of ease. But when Jesus says, come to me, hear my words and do them, what can that be likened to? So in my mind... I like to think of it as rowing in a massive river, like one of those white water rafting rivers, where there are bits that are fast and other bits that are slow. There are bits that are calm. There are boulders and whirlpools and quiet pockets of stagnant water. And there are different currents leaving, leading in different directions. And you know somehow you need to get down that river. And you know while some bits can be easily navigated, overall it'll be a challenge. And so what you do is you find your way into the right current. You position yourself, you align yourself with its flow, and then let it carry you. <clears throat> Sorry, just a second. And in this analogy, <clears throat> the current is the words of God, first and foremost in Scripture, but also through the leading of the Holy Spirit. You find the right current, you place yourself in the strip slipstream of the leading of the Lord. And then you yield. But it's not like floating on the inflatable I spoke of earlier, because there is some effort involved. You need to make sure you stay aligned with the flow. You need to make sure you're still facing the right direction. Because like I said, in these types of rivers, there are different currents leading in different ways. And if you're in the wrong one, you might end up in a whirlpool or in a dead end. Or otherwise, when the rapids come, you're in the wrong place, and it's bad news bears. And so sometimes along that river, you might still need to row a little bit, put in a little bit of effort, but you remain in that current. You let it do most of the work. This is what I mean with ease in our effort. Do you guys get what I'm saying? 
And this is what I believe that Jesus is saying when he says, come to me, glean the direction that I'm leading, where the current is flowing, and yield to it. Yield to his presence. Yield to his word and his command. Align yourself with the flow of the Holy Spirit and let him carry you. And you know, in our Christian walk, there will be times of effort and there will be seasons of ease. But I think more often than not, we find ourselves in seasons of ease in our effort. Or in other words, God's grace in our obedience. And what, are, what is the opposite of yielding, of being obedient? It is to rebel. Now let me tell you a story about rebellion. Okay. Before I was a Christian, rebellion was sort of my thing. I think my life motto was, you can't tell me what to do. And when I got saved, you would have thought that this part of me would have been instantly redeemed, but it wasn't, at least not right away, at least not until something happened. So in my early years as a born-again Christian, when I was living in Asia, I went on holiday with a friend to a beautiful tropical island. And on the first day on that island, my friend said to me, we should rent a moped and explore the island. Now, I remember feeling a check in my spirit, but she then said to me, come on, it'll be an adventure. And boy, do I love an adventure. And so that very day, we went and found a place where we rented a moped, and we were about to set off, and the guy at the rental place opened a map of the island, and he pointed to all the roads, and he said, you can drive here, you can drive here, and you can drive here. But then he pointed to part of the island with no paved roads, and he said, but do not drive here. And in my mind, immediately, I heard, challenge accepted. <laughs> and so we set off that day, and it was beautiful, both of us in our shorts and flip-flops, meandering through the jungles and palm trees, waving at the children at the side of the road. It was wonderful. And when we came to, came to the end of the paved road and I saw the dirt road ahead of me, I remember stopping and again feeling a check in my spirit. But I'm like, nah, I can do this, and just pressed on and we drove on. And so we were now driving through the hills and mountains of the island, and we stopped somewhere and hiked to a waterfall, had lunch there and swam in a crystal clear pool. It was beautiful. And then at the end of the day, happy and tired, we, we made our way home. And on the way home, the, just coming around a bend, the bike slided, started to slide a little bit. And before I knew it, we had crashed. Now, I got up off the floor in a significant amount of pain, and I'm like, oh, i got to walk it off. So I'm just like, walk it off, Rachel, walk it off. And then suddenly I hear screaming. So I look up at my friend, and she's pointing at my leg. And so I look down. And now, I'm not going to go into too much detail. For those of you who are squeamish, I see Rob over there holding his face ready. But suffice it to say that there was some gushing going on, and that parts of my body that would not be visible under perfectly healthy circumstances were visible that day. And so here we are, hours away from civilization. There's nobody around. I can't drive us anymore because I'm losing a lot of blood and might pass out on the way home. She can't drive because, I mean, she can't drive anyways, but she's in no state. And so I'm just standing there just cleaning my wounds with my water bottle because I don't know what else to do. Well, my friend's walking up and down the road screaming for help. When, thank God, within a few minutes, a truck appears. And so I don't remember much else. And maybe if you're really squeamish, close your ears right now. I don't remember much else but them putting us on the back of the truck and driving to the next village, which was basically three or four huts where the village midwife, who couldn't have been older than 21 years old, proceeds to sew me up without any anesthetic. They then put us back on the back, on the back of the truck with the bike again and drive us four hours to the next hospital. 
In the hospital, cover your ears again. In the hospital, the doctor takes a look at my leg and just says, you shouldn't sew up a dirty wound and proceeds to undo all the good work that the midwife did. At the same time, <laughs> the, I'm looking at Jack here. Jack's like, yeah. At the, sa at the same time, the nurses are cleaning out all my other road rash wounds, which, which up until that point, and this is pre-childbirth, mind you, was the most painful thing I had ever experienced. And I threw out, like a mad person, was screaming, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. It was a scene. But you see, I wasn't mad at God at that moment. I was grateful because I knew that he had tried to warn me twice. He tried to lead me, lead me in another direction. And I also somehow knew that it could have been much, much worse. And sure enough, in our week on that island, we heard so many stories from people that did the stupid tourist thing and went on those roads and came back with much worse injuries, life-changing injuries. And so I knew that God had protected me. And I learned three things that day. One, I learned why people who ride motorcycles wear leather. <laughs> Never clocked it before. Second, before all of this happened, I was a bit of an adrenaline chaser. And when people told me I was reckless, I would always say, I don't care if I die as long as I know I've lived. Such, a, such an adolescent thing to say. <laughs> but on that day, I learned that between perfectly healthy living and death lies a whole world of pain that I don't need to be experiencing. And three, I learned that the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 12, 15. It is wisdom to yield to prudent advice and heed a warning. And it's not that I didn't have an amazing time or a lovely day. I did, but it was not worth the price that I paid. Because on top of the physical pain, you see, I just didn't randomly pick that island. One thing you might, guys might not know about me is that scuba diving is one of my great, great passions. Like, I love it. And that island was special because it had been the location of a battle during the Second World War. And so peppered around the island were several World War II battleships that you could dive into and dive around, which to me would have been a dream. And I didn't cry once on the day of the accident until they told me I couldn't set foot into water. And then I bawled like a baby. And so I spent the rest of the week lying on a beach and fishing off of a boat, which to some people, true, I mean, even to me now, sounds like the, perfect, like the perfect notion of paradise. But while it was good, what I truly wanted, what would truly fill me and bless me, the reason I was there was just out of my reach. And we would often be fishing on the reefs right above where the divers were diving, and I would see them right below. And so the thing that I longed for the most was ever before me, perfectly visible through crystal clear water, but completely unattainable. And all things considered, and the incredible physical pain aside, it was a great holiday, but it wasn't the best that it could have been. Likewise, in our yielding to God's voice, if we fall short, there is still grace. There's still an element of protection and even blessing, but it isn't the fullness of blessing the Lord has for us. My rebellious nature was well and truly dealt with on that trip. And you know, when you think of it as a Christian, rebellion is so self-defeating. If we truly believe in a God who is eternal, who knows everything and who loves us beyond measure, then yielding to his voice is the only logical consequence. And the more you yield, I find, the more it becomes second nature 
You learn the rhythm of the current you're in, his directions and leading. You learn to recognize when you're out of step with his flow and correct course. And then his will becomes your will. And that is true freedom, to truly want and desire what is good, what is true, what is right, what is best for you and others. To walk in the fullness of who you are and what he has for you without even having to think about it. And it's in this place of yielding that you will experience his power flowing through you. Ease in our effort, grace in our obedience. And if you look further through the psalm, we continue to see these three states exemplified. Ease, effort, and ease in our effort. Now, when I, um, what I mentioned at the beginning is that in this place, David would have likely been in exile. Yet what was more is that David would have found himself far away from Jerusalem, which during his time would have been particularly painful because he was far away from the place of divine worship, the tabernacle, the Lord's tangible presence. Yet in this place, he says, I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the, ch in the shelter of your wings. And I believe David was both expressing a longing and a promise to be in God's presence, for there's nothing that quite comes close to God's presence. That the Passion Translation, or the Passion Bible, writes this line as, Lord, keep me in your glory. Now, those of us who um, love the presence of the Lord, we will often be chasing that glory. We'll be going from here to there, just chasing atmospheres. But you see, I think one thing that we don't realize is that through the sacrifice at Calvary, the Bible says we are the temple and the presence of the Lord dwells with us, within us. In David's day, there would have been a significant amount of effort involved with entering into God's presence and entering into that glory. The priests would have had to go through lengthy prescribed sacrifices and cleansing in order to walk behind that veil. But now this is the ease we have been granted. The Holy Spirit came and made his home in us, whether we know it or not or are aware of it or not. The access to God's presence is immediate through the price paid on the cross. Do you know that his presence is in you? Like, do you really, really know it? Christ in you, the hope of glory. The only effort required is to honor that presence, and it's comparatively a light burden to bear. And sometimes we still fall short. We fall out of sync with the current. And when we fall short of honoring that presence, just as the priests would be cleansed by the washing of the sh and the shedding of the blood, we too can now be cleansed through repentance, washed by the blood of the Lamb shed for us. You see the ease afforded to us. No exclusive, exclusive priesthood, no lengthy rituals. God is here. He is here. We simply yield to the power of the cross. It's power to put our sin to death and raise us renewed and free. We simply position ourselves back in the flow. There is ease in our effort. Then in the next verse, and in the final one, David speaks of vows. Now, during this time, there would have been an understanding of vows made before the Lord in return for blessing. And you see David here speaks of blessing in the same breath. Again, this is a reflection of effort required for the Lord before the cross. But after Jesus, our understanding has changed. Jesus says, you have heard you shall perform your oaths to the Lord, but I say to you, do not swear at all, 
But let your yes be your yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. In other words, don't put it off. Don't make empty promises. Just do. There is no try. Snuck in a cheeky Yoda quote there. All the Star Wars fans giggled. I see you. <laughs> Future promises, quid pro quos, these aren't signs of a loving mutual relationship. These aren't a partnership. We're called to partner with the Holy Spirit. Come close, Jesus says. Draw near. Hear my words and do them. Not later, but now. And so when David speaks of vows, we know that that particular effort is not for us. But what God has, however, called us to engage with is spiritual disciplines. Because sometimes the Spirit will lead you to pray, sometimes to worship, sometimes to fast even. And I think that these disciplines in a mystical way encompass both ease and effort. Again, ease in our effort. Because they're, in my view, not so much a notion of work or performance, but again, of yielding. We yield to God's voice calling us to spend time with him. We yield to God's beauty in worship, his power in fasting. Personally, I've found a huge amount of blessing in all of these. And I must say particularly in fasting. Have I experienced God's grace multiplied and his power made manifest in my life? For what is fasting? Spirit-led fasting is the ultimate act of surrender. It is deliberately weakening yourself, expressing with your entire body, God, I am utterly dependent on you. And going back to the analogy of the river, I think it's like moving into the faster current, into the rapids, and pulling the oars up, deliberately making yourself vulnerable, relinquishing all control. And this is a place where you experience the full power of the torrent. There is nothing you can do here. Any effort would be counterproductive. You just surrender. And in surrender, you become part of this mighty move, a power far greater than any effort you could muster. That's how he works, guys. He moves with us. He moves through us and the choices that we make. His power is made perfect in our weakness. And sometimes it won't be fasting, but it'll be life circumstances that will leave you feeling the sort of helplessness I just described, the helplessness you see here. Maybe it's financial struggle. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's grief. But you find you're completely out of control, sitting in that boat and trusting that somehow the floods will carry you safely through. In these cases, I think sometimes you'll look at the river in front of you and be like, I'm not going down there. I'm probably going to drown. David, when he spoke these words, was likely one of the worst seasons of his life. But read the psalm again. What does he do in his circumstance? He speaks of God's power, his glory, and his reign. God is magnified and exalted in his circumstance. You see, David was positioned for God's power to flow through his life. Position yourself through fasting, through obedience, in the torrential rapids even, if that's what it takes. Yield to his flow and let his power carry you. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. For when you are weak, then you are strong. And let me tell you, once you've experienced the powers of a mighty flood... Once you've, you're caught up in that awe and the fear, but at the same time you know the assurance of his love, all other feels, fears will pale in comparison 
Yield to his flow. Let his power carry you. It's sometimes a scarier path, but it is worth it. Now, I know that this is an incomplete analogy. God is much more than a current or a river. He is an all-encompassing, loving father who relentlessly pursues us. But the principle still applies. David finally closes this psalm with mention of the king. And while he speaks, speaks of an earthly king, he's also pointing to a heavenly king. And before the cross, there was so much brokenness to earthly kings. And some were good, some were bad. And the, the flourishing of the people was always inevitably tied to the king. And I don't know if you ever read any of the stories in the Bible around um, accessions, but it was really intense. It was really intense. There was maneuvering going on. There was fighting. There was murdering. It was like Game of Thrones without the gratuitous sex and, and violence. <laughs> Wholesome Game of Thrones. <laughs> But now we are spared all of that. For we have a perfect king in Jesus whose rule is firmly rooted in mercy and truth and whom we can trust to hold that balance divinely. There is an ease in knowing he sits on the throne. And this ease then in turn enables us to yield to our earthly authorities. We don't have to worry about who rules over us anymore in the same way. God reigns. Death is defeated. I'm not talking about blind obedience to our leaders here, okay? That has got a lot of the church in trouble in the past. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm simply talking about placing our trust in one ruler above all others, in Jesus. And through that small effort, we allow an ease to flow into our lives, an ease of assurance and of truth and mercy that no earthly leader can provide, resting in the fact, fact that we don't have to fight for our way or our voice. He fights for us. And out of this, our praises will flow. I'm going to ask the band to come up now and start playing. At the time of the psalm, praise was a duty, a work performed before the Lord. And the last line reflects this so well. So I will sing praise to your name forever that I may daily perform my vows. And while David had a heart of worship and doubtlessly worshipped from a pure heart, the performance of vows is what he ends on, effort. But not so with us. Let us not let our praise be a performance rooted in vows or promises, not out of a sense of works or duty, but let it be from a heart of gratitude and awe. Let it be a proclamation of the truths we have learned in our obedience, our weakest and our most vulnerable. That God is good, that he is worthy, that he is all-powerful, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let us enter the ease of praising the one who is praiseworthy. Position yourself in his grace and the flow of the Spirit. Let his power flow through you. His ease carry your effort. Ease and effort. Ease in our effort. That is the Christian walk. David, in his despair, said, When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I and Jesus responds to that heart cry when he spoke the words, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. 
Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.